Hi, it's Alice here. This was an especially proud week around the Academy of Achievement headquarters. Two esteemed members who've been featured on What It Takes became Nobel Prize winners. The first was Jennifer Doudna, the scientist who, along with Emmanuel Charpentier, developed CRISPR, a method of editing DNA that has thrown wide open new doors for the treatment of disease. We congratulate these two women, these pioneers, who are sharing the Nobel in chemistry. Our episode with Dr. Doudna posted in October of 2019, and there's a lot of wow in it, so please make sure you take a listen. The other What It Takes guest we are raising a glass to today is poet Louise Glick, who's just won the Nobel Prize in Literature. The Swedish Academy, in their announcement, described her as having an unmistakable poetic voice that with austere beauty makes individual existence universal. In her honor, we are replaying our episode here, which originally ran in the summer of 2017. Enjoy. I write to discover meaning. I want experience to mean something. It's less a matter of who I am than that that idea that nothing should be wasted. Something, something must come of it. And writing is a kind of revenge against circumstance, too. Bad luck, loss, pain. Um, if you make something out of it, then you've no longer been bested by these events. That is Louise Glick, one of America's preeminent poets. And just to clear this up before I go any further, you might think of her as Louise Gluck. I know I did, because her name is spelled G-L-U-C-K. But it's a Hungarian name, and it's actually pronounced Glick. So picking back up here, Louise Glick, has been writing and publishing poetry for well over 50 years. In 2003 and 2004, she was the Poet Laureate of the United States. As a professor, she's unleashed generations of poets into the world, and she's exceptionally honest. Some would say ruthlessly so, both in her poems and in talking about her embattled life as a writer. So on this episode, The Truth According to Louise Glick. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth, darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. First snow. Like a child, the earth's going to sleep, or so the story goes. But I'm not tired, it says. And the mother says, 
You may not be tired, but I'm tired. You can see it in her face. Everyone can. So the snow has to fall. Sleep has to come. Because the mother is sick to death of her life and needs silence. When 50 years of Louise Glick's poems were published in 2012, the New York Times critic called it a major event in this country's literature. He also called one of her earlier collections the most brutal and sorrow-filled book of American poetry published in the last 25 years. Glick's poems are spare, dark, piercing affairs. In her hands, even a first snow or a red poppy flower may be employed to explore some deep sadness. During her life as a poet, she has also turned many times to the mythic stories and characters of her childhood. They have served her well. My bedtime story when I was very, very little, my father used to tell my sister and me the story of St. Joan without the burning. And, you know, she heard voices, and I, I was very uh, accustomed to the idea that one heard voices. I hear language. It's not like a angel speaking to me, but language comes. And I, I don't know how to control it, but um, I'm very grateful when it happens. Glick's never been able to take those gifts for granted. There are years she's gone without sadly waiting for them in vain. But from the time she was little, she knew that a writer is what she wanted to be. It started with an anthology of beloved poems her grandmother owned, a physically tiny object that held treasures by Blake and Shakespeare and others. And even though Glick didn't fully understand them, of course, she says she could hear their cries from the heart by the time she was only four or five. Bizarrely early. I mean, it, w- it was a ca- one of those sort of child dreams that oftentimes gets knocked out of the child and replaced by something else, sometimes something equally grand. Um, I, early, always, I knew that what I wanted was to write. And I digressed occasionally. There was a period in which I wanted to be an actress which I later realized was simply that I wanted to be applauded. I had no gift for theater at all. I was a, I had a good memory. I could memorize lines, but I was a very wooden performer. I was cleaving so hard to an evolving self. The idea of subordinating that self to a role was <laughs> completely impossible. So I... My mother, with whom I was often at war in that period, kept saying, darling, darling, it's such a shame you want to be an actress because you're such a fine writer and painter. And she left the rest unsaid, and that made me more stubborn. I just, But that was very brief. And then I went back to what I dreamed of. I mean, I didn't know what you did to become a writer with a book, but I wrote poems from the time I was in my early, early teens. I submitted my first book when I was 13 or 14, was, I mean, of course, sent back, and poems to magazines. 
and I persisted. Poetry was a salve for a youth Glick described as catastrophic during this 2012 interview with the Academy of Achievement. The interviewer, journalist Gail Eichenthal, wanted to know, catastrophic in what sense? Oh, probably fairly ordinary sense in many ways. Um, I, I was not a successful adolescent. Uh, I, I seemed strange to the other children, and they were nasty to me. Um, I became quite withdrawn, and then I became uh, severely anorexic, which is why I was taken out of high school. Um, even though my plans for myself were all intellectual, I thought I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to be naturally a professor. Uh, but it was a very, very, very important event for me because it got me into psychoanalysis, which became important to my thought. I feel as though I learned how to think in psychoanalysis. Um, and I recovered a self that could be in the world. Of course, in analysis and out, she spent a lot of time figuring out what the anorexia was all about. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, a sort of repudiation of my mother, whose will was overpowering and whose uh, sense of ownership of her young was very intense and I needed a way of pushing her away and I also found unnerving the idea of beginning to have a body that was differentiated from other bodies. I wanted to be a pure soul and I thought this is the most amazing strategy. I will become a pure soul. I will liberate myself from the constrictions and earthliness of flesh. It was a great plan. <laughs> the problem was that you die of it. And when I realized that, I mean, it, there was nothing in me self-destructive. I was trying to create a self. I just chose badly and I was awfully lucky that I had an analyst gifted enough to talk me down off the tree branch. It was during that time in analysis that Glick started going to poetry workshops at Columbia University in New York. She found it thrilling to be in a world of people who were interested in what she was interested in. And she had two remarkable professors there who were great poets in their own right, Stanley Kunitz and Leonie Adams. We used to smoke about eight cigarettes at a time, you know, that one would be burning its way toward her fingers, and we'd all watch mesmerized to see if the ash would fall. And then she'd put it down and start another, and there, there were these <laughs> cigarettes burning all over the room. And she was not a poet whose work I particularly revered, but she was a very great teacher. Um, she, she had about her an air of high seriousness and devotion that was attractive to me. And Stanley Kunitz the same. There was a sense of you subordinated your ego 
to the needs of the poem. And also, uh, he taught, he, he, he somehow made clear that we were going to need, beside patience, very tough hide, because there are so many forms of humiliation. Um, you know, there's neglect, which is the obvious one. There's praise for characteristics that you think are not yours and that you deplore. And to be praised for things that you deplore is, is quite punishing. Um, and there's neglect, um, the kind that pats you on the head and moves on to the more interesting things. And all of it just cycles, you know, through. You know, what you, you, you ascend for a certain period. You can feel the pins moving on the board. And then all of a sudden, there you are, target practice for people. And you have to just live through all of it, all of it, and not be destroyed. When Glick became a professor herself, she wanted to pass along those same lessons to her students. I try. I, I let them know that if they're projecting onto me a kind of um, serenity of um, acknowledged accomplishment, that they, they're quite mistaken, that that is not the experience of being in the world, and that it's all struggle. It's, the whole life is struggle and euphoria. And that's why there's daily life, which is an enormous consolation. You know, just the tasks of daily life, cooking dinner, gardening, going out with friends. She revels in these things because writing poetry can so often be a torment. A place of suffering, harrowing. Things aren't going well, things aren't going well, and then things are great and then struggle again. There's a period of kind of tranquility after some large thing has been completed. And it's, it's that wonderful point, uh, many people talk about this, the moment of having written. And you don't, have to, you don't have to do it for a while. That's very lovely. Uh, but then mm, there's a sense of the strangest anxiety, but anxiety builds the sense that an account must be invented. I still don't completely understand that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about all these issues and talking about them. The bottom line issue, why do I need to keep writing at all? Why? But I feel alive when I'm doing it and much less alive when I'm not doing it. Before the storm, Rain tomorrow, but tonight the sky is clear, the stars shine. Still the rain's coming, maybe enough to drown the seeds. There's a wind from the sea pushing the clouds. Before you see them, you feel the wind. Better look at the fields now. See how they look before they're flooded. A full moon. Yesterday a sheep escaped into the woods, and not just any sheep, the ram, the whole future. If we see him again, we'll see his bones. 
the grass shudders a little. Maybe the wind passed through it, and the leaves of the olive shudder in the same way. Mice in the fields, where the fox hunts. Tomorrow there'll be blood in the grass, but the storm, the storm will wash it away. In one window, there's a boy sitting. He's been sent to bed too early, in his opinion. So he sits at the window. Everything is settled now. Where you are now is where you'll sleep, where you'll wake up in the morning. The mountain stands like a beacon to remind the night that the earth exists, that it mustn't be forgotten. Above the sea, the clouds form as the wind rises, dispersing them, giving them a sense of purpose. Tomorrow, the dawn won't come. The sky won't go back to being the sky of day. It will go on as night, except the stars will fade and vanish as the storm arrives, lasting perhaps ten hours altogether. But the world, as it was, cannot return. One by one, the lights of the village houses dim, and the mountain shines in the darkness with reflected light. No sound. Only cats scuffling in the doorways. They smell the wind. Time to make more cats. Later they prowl the streets, but the smell of the wind stalks them. It's the same in the fields, confused by the smell of blood. Though for now only the wind rises, stars turn the field silver. This far from the sea, and still we know these signs. The night is an open book, but the world beyond the night remains a mystery. Louise Glick's poems have earned her practically every prize available to a poet, including a National Book Award, a Pulitzer, and Yale University's Bollingen Prize. But the problem is if you get a prize and you're not writing anything, or you're writing stuff that seems so bizarre that you don't know what to make of it, then your feelings about yourself as an artist are completely um, driven by are you still an artist? That query. And the fact that you have been or once were or that book was good, but what have you got to show for yourself now? The discrepancy is sometimes very painful. And a lot of prizes, I mean, the judges are just human beings and they have agendas and they have feuds and they have loyalties. And if you know something about the world, it's very, I'm sure this is true in other fields. You can see that so-and-so is getting this because the judge is actually ferociously jealous of someone else who properly should have gotten it. Things like nasty businesses like that. So worldly honor, it makes existence in the world easier. I mean, it makes, it puts you in a position to have a good job. Um, It means that you can 
or you could, in a different economy, charge large fees to get on an airplane and perform. But, and, and for all that, I'm very grateful. Um, but as, a, as an emblem of what I, wa what I want I, I, is, not ha is not capable of being had in my lifetime. I want to live after I die in that ancient way. And there's no knowing whether that will happen. And there will be no knowing, no matter how many blue ribbons I have plastered to my corpse. But the poems are not the only thing that offer Louise Glick some possibility of an afterlife. She has been a professor for almost 50 years at Goddard College and Williams, the University of Iowa, and Yale. She has taught and inspired generations of young poets. In turn, they have taught and inspired her. But she more or less stumbled into teaching. Um, it was a miracle. It was one of the greatest gifts of my life. Um, I had long thought that to be an artist involved, um, and I think there's writers who make this case, the repudiation of the world. You channel all of these vital energies into only this one thing. Um, you're not distracted by pleasure or, or ordinariness. You uh, don't do any job that would use those same pieces of your mind. And that was, to me, temperamentally congenial. Repudiation was something I was very good at. Um, so I lived uh, in my 20s, mainly fending off, uh, not experience, because it was a time of great you know, love affairs and so on, but professional work of a kind that would, I thought, draw on my vital juices. I was a secretary, which did not do that. Um, but my writing life at that point was spent sitting in front of a piece of white paper at a typewriter, completely paralyzed. And I would think, I've got to write something. I've got, and I would write the, and then push really hard and tree would come out but I could everything was dead I had I had I had exhausted a mode of writing in my first book I had no new sound to make you have to hear first a message from the ear a kind of sound a, a, a phrase I had no had nothing to go on and I kept uh, doing less and less because I thought I wasn't sacrificing enough, I wasn't renouncing enough. And finally, it occurred to me that I wasn't going to be an artist, that this dearest wish of my heart would not be answered, and I thought I'd better think of something to do. And I had had um, offers of teaching jobs one semester, year-long things based on my book. Um, 
and I'd turned them down because poets shouldn't teach. I don't know how I knew that. Where, where, I don't know where that came from, but it was a conviction. It was basically a sentence, a nervous sentence that began, poets shouldn't, and then you could fill in any blank that was serviceable at the time. I was invited to go to Vermont to take part in a colloquium, and John Berriman was among those invited, and he was a hero. I wanted to meet him. And the minute I got to Vermont, I, I felt I'm supposed to live here. And I had never had that feeling. I, home to me wasn't where I grew up, Long Island. It certainly wasn't New York City. But I got to Vermont and I thought, this is where I'm supposed to be. And the minute I started teaching, I became happy. I was happy in Vermont. I, my in, intuition was right. And teaching released me. It was one of the most dramatic, transformative experiences of my life and entirely positive. It didn't have, I mean, having a baby was a something like that, but it initially was terrifying and horrible. Um, but this was simply, I loved what I was doing. I, I found my students fascinating, gifted. Uh, I was not much older than they were. I started writing. I started writing with a fluency I had never experienced. The thing is, when she was helping students with their poems, she was able to work with the same intensity she applied to her own work, but without the anxiety. And that, she says, is what reopened the door to her own productivity. She has continued teaching since then, and it continues to work for her. They'll make me a better writer. They will. I get excited by the freshness of their minds. There are a number of people my own age who, who are, have done or are doing extraordinary, remarkable work. But I feed more on the young because of the sense of the sounds they're making are different, new, new to my ear. And how exactly does she help her students to shape those new sounds into successful poems? You're trying to uh, get the feeling of what it is that's, why is this, what is the originality you feel on the page, if there is any. If, if someone's really a beginner, then you simply try to isolate the moments when the, the poem seems alive, as opposed to inert. And, you know, if you can see from the first line where it's going and then it goes there, it's a dead thing. It makes, it takes you nowhere you don't know already. And if it does so in elegant metaphors, so what? This poem has already been written 3,000 times. But when you see something that is unprecedented. And if you can show the person that. So that's one level of teaching. But then once, the, once people become really artists, young artists, but artists, you, there's no, it, it's not doing it. 
better according to some formula. It's where does the poem wilt a little? Where is it um, a most conventional or generic? And can that moment be addressed and reinvented so that that taint of the generic will be forever obliterated? It's that that you try to do. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating problem and different for every poem. And what about the muse interviewer Gail Eichenthal wanted to know? Does she feel any relationship to that word? Well, I hate the word, but, but it's true that something sometimes visits and other times doesn't. I mean, I feel definitely that I wish I felt otherwise, but I feel as though there has to be some catalyst, some inspiration, some, all of a sudden there's a phrase in your head, where does that thing come from? I don't know, and because I don't know, I don't know how to have more of them. Sometimes there'll be lines in, in my head for two years before I know how to use them. I, I don't know in what context what I hear can be liberated. And so initially they seem a great gift because you have these two beautiful lines. And then they become a torment because you have these two beautiful lines that aren't in themselves a poem. And you have no idea what kind of house to build for them, around them. And there have been periods in my life when I've been when my first thought in the morning has been that piece of language, my last thought at night, the piece of language, but it's like a whip. It's a punishment because I can't do it. And then in each of those cases, ultimately, I could write a poem that made a world. Um, and every, every so often, after I was 50, I started writing books very rapidly. This happened in the, in the maybe four or five books. The Wild Iris was written, except for about five poems, it was written in six weeks, eight weeks. Uh, Vita Nova, the same. The Seven Ages was written in something like, yeah, six weeks. I mean, you know, just like four or five poems a day, and then you sh the day before you start, you're complete blank, and then all of a sudden, six weeks later, you have a book. It's a hard, and then you're very tired, and you get sick. Um, and then some of the other village life was different. Um, Averna was written in two halves. Um, the first kind of slow, dogged, hopeless. Then hiatus of about two years, and then two years later, the second half, very fast. And then village life was sort of ideal. It was a steady writing for about a year, and a sense of great um, curiosity and 
contentment and richness without any of the tempestuousness of that very rapid you give up sleep thing. I, I know it sounds like some, something that should be medicated, but um, it, it, I, it doesn't feel like mania to me. It's very, it's very specific to this one event. Um, anyway, it's certainly not going on now. Remember, this interview was done in 2012, and there have certainly been poems published since. But only the poet knows whether she is in a state of ebb or flow at the moment. Still, after all these years, she never truly has confidence that inspiration will return. It's like a switch, she says, that flips between on and off. And every time it's off, you feel as though this is the... This is the true silence. This is the end of all speech. It's a horrible feeling. And it still dogs me. Louise Glick's desire to hear is both figurative and literal, and so music has a central role in her life and sometimes in her writing, too. I start listening to something obsessively, and I do that even when I'm not writing. Mainly classical, mainly opera or song. Um, I spent two years listening to um, Don Giovanni, Truly nonstop. Which may have been hard on my family because I was living with a kid and a husband at the time. But, and my only reading was flower catalogs. I was getting really passionate about the garden. And I was writing nothing. And I thought two years two and a half years, I thought, no wonder you can't write anything. All you do is listen to Mozart and read about begonias. I mean, <laughs> what do you expect? Um, and finally I thought, I, I just, I didn't know what to do, and I was walking in the garden and doing a little desultory weeding, and I thought, well, I'll try to write a poem spoken by a flower. And immediately I thought, well, within two days, when I wrote another, I thought, this, this, I know what I'm doing. And it was still Don Giovanni and the flower catalogs, but all of a sudden they'd fused into this form. Here's a recording of Louise Glick reading from her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, in 1992. The Wild Iris. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises, branches of the pine shifting. Then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. 
then it was over. That which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly, the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue shadows on azure sea water. Here's an odd thing about Louise Glick. She hates reading her poems out loud, even though, like most poets, she has to give a lot of readings. For me, the poem is alive on the page. I, this form I deplore. It seems like form of salesmanship. I do not want to hawk my wares. Um, a poem on a page makes a kind of net or web. The, the eye moves up and down the lines, um, braiding sound patterns together and seeing... Um, Uh, intellectual correspondences. You can't get that in a reading which moves uh, chronologically, sequentially, complicated, nuanced um, words have to be read in a single focused dramatic way to move through the text. The poem is simplified, simplified, diminished in my feeling. And I don't like reading my own work, and I don't like hearing work that I love read aloud. I hear it with my eyes. But even reading poetry on the page, she says, is complicated for her now. I mean, if I love something, it makes me want to jump off a roof. If I don't, I I get enraged, uh, not fruitfully. Um, I tend to read fiction. For solace. There are poets I never tire of. George Oppen, example. Um, some of my early favorites. Blake. I like austere language, but there's some poets I loved and can't read anymore. A- Emily Dickinson I, is like chalk on a blackboard. It's like fingernails on a blackboard, whatever that figure of speech is. There's a kind of, well, I, I mean, she's a very great artist, so I don't want to say wh- why I don't like her. No, it's not, it's not that, that, that it's too harrowing or too scary. You know, the sort of insane maiden lady sound. Um, kittenish. But she was one of my great heroes early on. She also acknowledges the brilliance of Yeats, but doesn't read him regularly anymore either. No, when I read the poems, I think they have that feeling of having always been in the language. They're gorgeous. I don't like stadium poetry. I like, come closer, let me whisper in your ear. But despite Glick's current feelings about reading other people's poems, she says her advice to anyone who wants to write poetry is to read poetry. It's pretty basic, except when it's not. Some people are already reading so much that to tell them to read more, their voices will be drowned. They already are going to read more. They're going to read every waking hour. So you remind them 
to um, live in the world. Don't actually that is something that I do say because sometimes people have in mind the kind the kinds of renunciations I practiced myself and instinctively are, am drawn to. Women who say they're not going to have children, they're not going to have professions, they're not going to go to law school, they're not going to go because they want to just write poems. And I think your poems, the ones that are yours and not skillful clones of existing poems, um, will come about through your having lived the life that most closely enacts your own passions. And if you spurn them, you'll never write. I mean, you may write, but you won't make anything. So I, I push them toward yeses. I think we'll end with that beautiful piece of advice. That and one more poem. Crossroads. My body. Now that we will not be traveling together much longer, I begin to feel a new tenderness toward you, very raw and unfamiliar, like what I remember of love when I was young, love that was so often foolish in its objectives, but never in its choices, its intensities, too much demanded in advance, too much that could not be promised. My soul has been so fearful, so violent. Forgive its brutality. As though it were that soul, my hand moves over you cautiously, not wishing to give offense, but eager finally to achieve expression as substance. It is not the earth I will miss. It is you I will miss. That's poet and professor Louise Glick. You can find out more about her at achievement.org. And while you're there, take a look through the Academy of Achievement's whole incredible archive of interviews, the one I'm lucky enough to visit every time I start working on another episode of What It Takes. I'm Alice Winkler. Thanks for listening. Funding for what it takes comes from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation.